Exodus, chapters 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, A man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Exodus. Father, it is a long way away from us in culture and in the things it describes. And yet, uh, we pray that you, by your spirit, would show us the truth about you, yourself, your character. So that as we uh, study this ancient text, we might learn modern lessons about our great God. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of discontent. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. There are some wonderful opening lines in literature. And not least of all, the book that precedes Exodus, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. And for the start of the book of Exodus, the foundational book of the people of God... The book that they look to again and again throughout the whole Old Testament and say, this is our birth. This is how our God reveals himself. We read, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Thanks for that detail. How very underwhelming. Dull even to our ears. And after that we get this odd, odd story that goes into huge detail about weird little things like midwives and childbirth and tells us about the waterproof covering of a basket but never even tells us which pharaoh's on the throne. I mean, what is going on? There's none of the things a historian wants to know. 
And there's none of the relational details that our culture today craves. I mean, you look at verse 21, uh, and it makes it sound like Moses of chapter 2. Moses turns up to dinner the first night at Rule's house, and the conversation goes, thank you so much for rescuing my daughters. Would you like a a beer, some peanuts maybe? Uh, Do stay for dinner. And how about marrying Zippy? It's just... I'll bet you your future mortgage that the upcoming Christian Bale epic Exodus, Gods and Men, will have a whole lot more detail about the romantic gathering together of those two people than the Bible. Why? What is going on in this story? What are we to make of it? The Bible consistently teaches Exodus is key to our understanding, if we're followers of God, of what it means to be rescued by God, what it means to be his people. So what does it teach? See, the problem is people are always reading whatever they want out of the book of Exodus. I mean, you've only got to look at the the trailer of the, the upcoming Ridley Scott epic to know that he looks at Exodus very, very differently from, say, Cecil B. DeMille's classic, The the Ten Commandments, which was basically uh, a movie devoted to say, if society was any more moral, everything would be all right. Or uh, Disney's Prince of Egypt, which turned it into an inspirational story whose message is, who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe. Which I think means it's very different from every other Disney movie. Uh, Martin Luther King and the liberation theologians from Latin America have turned Exodus and said, this is a book that tells us political oppression is the fundamental thing that God is against. But what does it actually teach? I mean, there's just so much strange stuff going on. Is it, is it a story about the value that God places on the life of babies? Is it a story that's telling us it's okay to lie like the midwives do, so long as it's for the greater good? And what if we, as we should, turn away from the sort of moralizing lessons, uh, the what can I learn about my life in it, and turn, okay, well, the Bible's about God, so what do we actually learn about God here? Well, he doesn't seem to do a lot, does he? You know, on the face of it, his people suffer terrible oppression and nothing. Their babies are slaughtered and nothing. Finally, after two chapters, when this has gone on for decades, decades, verse 24 says, eventually God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant, that is his promise to Abraham, their ancestor. What do you make of that? Uh, uh, God's deaf until things get really bad? Uh, My sister was at a school out in the countryside and there was a you know, this wonderful thing in Britain where tiny country lanes, 60 mile an hour speed limit. And her school appeared just after a bend in the road and the school straddled the road. And there were dozens of near misses with sort of absent-minded school children and speeding traffic coming flying across this road. So they spoke to the council and said, please, could you put in some traffic calming, some, uh, some warnings or bollards or speed bumps? And basically the council said, we have no budget for that unless there's been a fatal accident. I mean, is that what God is like? You know, look, I'm just not interested until you've got some proper decades worth of suffering. A few babies killed. I don't wake up to that sort of cry. Thankfully, if we just look a little bit more closely at the passage, we find that there is a clear message, quietly written. And it is a message of great encouragement and great importance to you and me, even though we're three and a half thousand kilometers and three and a half thousand years from these events. And this passage teaches us subtly, 
but nonetheless clearly and loudly about the silent faithfulness of God to his plan and his people. I've just uh, been to a new dentist. Um, I went there on, uh, on the very good basis that it was right around the corner and the offices looked clean and, and shiny and they took NHS patients. Job done as far as I was concerned. Until I was sat in the chair and had sharp pointy metal things in my mouth and I suddenly thought, I know nothing about you. And I'm surreptitiously trying to check, you know, are there any online reviews of this dentist on my phone? <laughs> you know, they're going to be sticking drills into my teeth. I really want to know something about you before you stick a drill in my teeth. God is not trusted with our teeth. We trust him with our whole lives. That's the call. Jesus says, follow me. Well, if I'm going to follow you with all my life, I really want to know something about you, God. Can we trust him? Do you know enough about God to put your whole life in his hands? And what happens in the book of Exodus, primarily, above all else, is that God reveals what he's like as he calls us into relationship with him. The central movement of Exodus is God revealing himself to his people, rescuing them so that they can dwell with him and know him. So the God who created the heavens and the earth at the start of Genesis, the God who promised to send a serpent crusher to defeat the evil that we'd brought into the world, the God who made promises to Adam, uh, to Abraham, that he would bless the whole world and bring salvation through one of Abraham's descendants, the God who rescued Noah from the flood and judged the world, that God now steps forward. In Genesis, principally God acts, he does stuff. But now in Exodus, he starts to reveal himself, to speak, to say, this is what I'm like. Now God says, come to know me. Come to be my people. I will rescue you and you will be mine. And at the start of Exodus, we learn in chapters 1 to 2, the first lesson before he starts speaking to his people, which is he is faithful even when he's not speaking to them. I mean, he doesn't really say a word in this passage. On the surface, he barely figures at all. He's silent, but looks can be deceiving. If you like this passage, God is an iceberg, a small little lump visible over the surface, concealing a vast, vast mass underneath. And again, we see his providence that we've been learning about at the end of Genesis last year, uh, earlier in the year. God working behind the scenes of human history to bring about his good plans for the salvation of his people. And we see it in a number of ways. The first thing we see is Pharaoh's failing words. So in contrast to the silence of God, Pharaoh talks a lot in this passage. Uh, Pharaoh is just the, uh, the Egyptian name for a king. So um, when we read uh, throughout this passage of king, it's basically the same word that they would have used for Pharaoh. But he's a whole lot more than just a king. He is the most powerful ruler in the world at the time. You take a street survey at this time in the known world and say, who's the most powerful being in the universe? And everybody says, Pharaoh's stupid. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. Almost 400 years have passed at this point since Joseph saved saved Egypt from the great famine and his family then settled there with the gratitude of every Egyptian ringing in their ears. But a new king, we're told, has arisen and he couldn't give a monkeys about what Joseph did in the past. To him, Joseph meant nothing. Verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly 
and became exceedingly numerous, so the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, or to whom Joseph was nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He doesn't care, verse 8, about what Joseph did in the past, but he does care, verses 9 to 10, about what Joseph's descendants might do in the present and what they might do in the future. They're breeding like rabbits, and he's thinking, if this carries on, there'll be more of them than us, and they'll be more powerful than us. This is not good. And uh, there's an awful lot of um, rise of anti-immigration parties at the moment. They've got nothing on this guy. He fosters a climate of fear, and then he oppresses. And boy, does he oppress them. He tries to break them with harsh slave labor, verse 14, working them ruthlessly, but, verse 12... But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So he escalates the wickedness. Verse 16, he orders the midwives. I mean, can you imagine this? When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Cut the umbilical cord and then cut the child's throat, all right? That's what you do. Can you imagine how terrifying to be one of those two, um, the leaders of the midwives, to be given that order by a man whose word is law, to realize that we are ruled by a man who is so fundamentally wicked that he is willing to say, cut the throat of any baby boy who's born. And he's willing to say that in public and make it a law and not be ashamed or embarrassed about it. But who do they fear? Not Pharaoh. They fear God, verse 17. And so they let the baby boys live. And there is a little hint of God's favour. Pharaoh is not even named, but we do know the names of Shiphra and Pua, verse 15, the midwives. God knows his faithful people. They are not forgotten. They are, are not to be swept away. God will protect them and God will preserve them and God will honour his faithful people. And so once again, Pharaoh's word fails. Verse 20, yet more Hebrew babies are born. Even the midwives start giving birth. It's like there are babies just popping out everywhere in response to Pharaoh. He's he's trying to stop it. And they just, just can't stop them having children. So the order goes out in verse 22. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you throw into the Nile. The river that was the symbol of life for Egypt would be death for every Israelite baby boy. And now the silent God really starts to mock Pharaoh. Not only does his word fail, but his word fails because he can't even get his own daughter to do what he said. It is her, it is his daughter who rescues this Israelite baby boy and gives him a Hebrew name of all things. And then finally, move over to chapter 2, verse 15. Pharaoh tries to have Moses killed as an adult and again he fails. Throughout this passage where God seems silent and Pharaoh is the one doing and ordering and charging around. The man whose word is law, whose decrees are terrifying. For all his murderous, genocidal rage. Do you notice that the writer doesn't record in this, in this account a single instance where Pharaoh actually manages to kill a single Israelite. But at the very end, chapter 2 verse 23, 
Pharaoh dies. God may be on his silent, hidden. Pharaoh may be on the throne, casting his terrifying shadow over Egypt, bringing fear and terror to all, but he is absolutely powerless when you really look at it. Pharaoh shouts, Pharaoh passes decrees, Pharaoh sends people out with his orders, but he is powerless against the silent God. Secondly, promised faithfulness. God may be silent, but when you read carefully, you see the text is full of signs that he is fulfilling his promises. In particular, central to the Bible is the promise made in Genesis 12 that God makes to Abraham, that he would bless Abraham by being his God, by giving him descendants and a land to live in, and making them a great nation. And when he repeated the promise in Genesis 15.5, he takes Abraham out of his tent one night and tells, tells him, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it's not London that he takes him out. And you know, I'm going to have three descendants. Wow. No, he takes him out into a desert. And as Abraham looks up into the 80 billion galaxies of the observable universe and sees half the sky twinkling with light from distant stars, God says, that is what I'm promising you. And the promise is repeated to his son Isaac in Genesis 26.4 and to his grandson Jacob in Genesis 28.14. And at this point, 600 or so years later, Abraham's descendants don't have the blessing of God dwelling with them yet. That waits a few chapters. Wait for chapter 29. They don't yet have their own land. But verse 5, 70 of them went down to Egypt with Joseph. And now verse 7 The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous. So the land was filled with them. You can't miss the point in that verse. And again, verses 9 to 10, they were numerous, so numerous, Pharaoh's afraid of them. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. God has started to fulfill his promise. The, The passage is just overloaded with the words multiplied, numerous, exceedingly, many, full, filled. Not even Pharaoh's attempted holocaust can stop their growth. And every time you read of Pharaoh's action against the people of God, the passage follows it up with a description of how they multiplied, how there were more of them. Now, in one sense, this should be no surprise to us. The first time you encounter God in the Bible, he speaks a word and the entire universe comes into existence. God's words shape reality. So, of course, if God promises, you will have many descendants... I will bless you and I will bring an end to the curse of sin and death through you and I'll give you a land. If God promises those things, it has to happen. His words bring reality about and here we see it starting to be fulfilled. Uh, Thirdly, there's promised affliction that shows that God is in control. It's odd, isn't it? But the silent faithfulness of God is also proved by the affliction and suffering of his people. Now, that might seem a strange thing to say. Why do I say it? Well, because, again, God promised it would happen. If you turn back to Genesis 15, verse 13, over half a century earlier, God said this to Abraham. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. All Pharaoh's murderous, hateful schemes and all he's doing, in spite of everything, is fulfilling what God had already said would happen. 
The nation is blessed by growth amidst the suffering and persecution. And even the suffering and persecution proves the faithfulness of God. And for us too, there is a promise of God. In Acts 14.22 and 1 Thessalonians 3-4, to God's word says, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So you and I need to know the hard, heavy, but solid comfort that the pain and disappointment that you and I feel and experience in life, the sufferings that we go through are not proof God has forgotten us. God has promised we would go through them. What an encouragement that even the, even the painful, destructive things that happen to us are not outside of his control. Even those things are within his promise. And he is at work through them and faithful in them. And just a little while and they will be over and we will be home. And we will live so much better if we learn to accept God's good and wise ways include hardship. Well finally, uh, we see the silent faithfulness of God in the hints throughout this passage of the salvation that is coming. Uh, There are no plagues yet. The Red Sea is just a flat body of water at this point in the story. And if you walk through Egypt at the end of chapter 2, you would have no indication whatsoever that the Israelites are about to be rescued. All the surface evidence points to them being a doomed people destined to die in chains. But look again. First is, we already saw in our sweep through chapter 1, not a single Hebrew is recorded as dying in this chapter, in spite of all Pharaoh's decrees. Just a hint that God will protect his people. And the hints just get stronger in chapter 2. Isn't it odd that in a very compact text, a text that tells us very little indeed, almost none of the details we want to know, and yet we know exactly what covering was used to waterproof the basket that Moses was placed in and the banks of the Nile. Why on earth, when you don't get round to telling us who Pharaoh is, would you do that in chapter 2, verse 3? When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket and coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds on the bank of the river Nile. What an odd thing to, to do. And it is meant to intrigue us, to make us think why. It's meant to have you reaching for a Bible dictionary. And if you do so, you find a couple of things. You find it's not the first time that something has been waterproof by being covered in pitch in the Bible. What did Noah cover the ark with to make it waterproof? You guessed it. Pitch. And what's more, the word translated basket here basically means some sort of enclosed floating thing. It's a word only used in one other place in the Bible. Can you guess where that would be? Mm, Guessed it again. It's the word translated ark in Genesis 6 to 8. A hint that God is going to do it again. Someone else will be saved from watery death. God is acting to fulfill his promise to preserve his people. A promise through which one day death will be overturned even. And all that is wicked will be destroyed. And the little boy in the basket of the ark is called Moses. The one drawn out of the waters. We're not standing on the side of the Red Sea yet looking at the walls of water and the dry land between them. But there is just a hint. Just a hint even here of what is to come. And then at the end of chapter 2... Moses is described as a rescuer. 
Do you see that? He rescued us. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, verse 19. This time he's just rescuing some shepherd girls from a bunch of thugs at a watering hole. But of all the things the narrator could have him described as, of all the episodes to recount from the first 40 years of his life, we learn he is a rescuer. Of course, there is another rescue in verses 11 to 14. Uh, One day Moses had grown up. He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? You think you're killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled. Moses sees an Egyptian fighting and Moses acts to rescue the Israelite from the Egyptian. And he meets out retribution and hides the body in the sand. But it backfires horribly. The other Hebrews don't. Who are you? Who appointed you king over us? What right have you got to to rise up and and take action on our behalf? And Pharaoh just tries to kill him. So why on earth record this episode when when, um, Moses fails so miserably? I'm not certain, to be honest, but I suspect we're only ready to learn about Moses, God's rescuer. Moses, God's chosen leader, when we realise that Moses on his own would make an absolute mess of the whole thing. Moses on his own would have no power to rescue the Israelites. See, again and again, the Bible sticks a spear through our desperate desire to have a human leader we can trust in. And again and again, we realise that uh, Christian leaders fail us. And the point of the Bible, again and again, is to remind us God is the great one. Moses is not great because God recognises a greatness within him, as Disney would have it. Moses is the great rescuer because God equips, empowers and enables him. The Bible is not a, a Disney movie. And you and I are only ready to learn about Moses the rescuer once we've realised Moses cannot rescue on his own. Only God can make Moses the rescuer. But of course, the hints and the signs and the shadows do not just point us to Moses, the rescuer. They also point us through Moses to a much greater rescuer and a much greater rescue many centuries later. Because as you read on in the Bible, you find there's another time when another king would decree the death of baby boys. And another child would be placed somewhere it didn't belong. This time, not in a basket in the Nile, but in a feeding trough in a stable. And another man would spend time in the wilderness before he was ready to enter his public ministry. And when this child grew up, he wouldn't save his people by killing the oppressor and burying him in the sand, but by being killed and being buried himself in the ground. See, Moses is a a hint or a shadow in the Bible. The technical term is a, a type who points us to Jesus Christ. He models what Jesus will do. He prepares us for what Jesus will do in his death on the cross that doesn't rescue us from a physical chains and a physical slavery um, to a, a political master. But he rescues us from the greater, the deeper, the far worse slavery to our own sinful desires and the death that none of us can escape. Okay, step back. 
Our world looks very, very different from the world we read about in in Exodus 1 and 2. So what are we to make of this? I think one thing that remains the same for you and for me is that God's faithfulness never makes the headline in our world either. So what? What does that mean? I think the big thing is don't be alarmed by the fact that the headlines, just like the surface reading of this passage, never look good for the people of God. The headlines tell us about um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's the self-proclaimed caliph, the leader of the Islamic State, dead set on a global Sharia Islamic State. And he has the fanatical followers who are prepared to bathe the world in blood to bring about his desires. But the headlines don't tell you much about his brother, Muhammad Bakr al-Baghdadi, who turned to follow Jesus Christ last year. The headlines tell us about the frightening rise of radical Islam, not just over in the Middle East, but right here in our liberal Western democracies. Because access to hate preachers on the internet means that here in our communities, in our schools, our universities, our homes, children are being exposed to radical Islam and are going to Syria to fight and are bringing back their dangerous ideas. But the headlines don't tell you what Christian workers in the Middle East say, which is that access to the same internet means the gospel is now available in the most closed, hardline Muslim countries. They don't tell you that because of this access and the brave efforts of missionaries, Christian workers in the area again and again are saying more Muslims have turned to follow Jesus Christ in the last 50 years than in the previous 500. The primetime TV slots are given over to to Brian Cox and Richard Dawkins, the atheists who tell us we now know so much from science that we no longer need to turn to God to explain the deepest questions of the universe. They're all answered by science. Primetime TV and best-selling books celebrate the total irrelevance of God. But primetime TV and the best-selling books don't tell us about the explosion of church planting in the last 10 years in our cities. They don't tell us about the great growth of the Christian unions at the universities or the number of intelligent young men and women giving their life to Christ and seeing that it is not the end of their intellectual endeavours but the start of it. Don't despair, don't let the headlines intimidate you. Behind the scenes, God is at work and nothing and no one can stop our God fulfilling his promises to save his people. Even when we can't see what he's doing, even when his hand is hidden behind the scenes, our God is at work just as he was in Egypt. And you and I need to grasp this truth firmly or we will never dare to live fully and recklessly for God. You and I need an absolute confidence that God is at work and that he will win. So that in my life, in my battles against sin, in my struggles to be courageous enough to tell people about Jesus, I'll serve and obey him no matter the cost because I know God is at work and I know one day, one day he will win publicly. And even if today his hand is hidden, even if today he is silent, one day the Lord Jesus will return and all will be vindicated. And the better we know God, the more time we spend with him learning together as a community of people about his character in the Bible, the more solid our confidence will be in his plans and his providence. 
his promises of what he's going to do and his way of working, which is so often subtle and behind the scenes. We need to know someone. We need to know their character to know whether we can trust them. And the better we know our Bibles, the better we will know our God and the more confident we will be that he is at work. He is at work in this world, our world, his world. And the more sure we are of the character of our God and his faithfulness to his promises, the more joyfully and courageously we'll live, no matter what the headlines might say, no matter what the loud shouting voices of our day are proclaiming and how intimidating they are, for we know that behind the scenes, God is on the throne. He is faithful and he will win. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the message of Exodus. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to your people. And we thank you that even here at the start, before you have stepped onto the stage, that we learn that you are a God of faithfulness. We pray that we, your people, would learn to trust you even when we cannot see you. Amen.